0: Welcome to the Layman's Guide to the Lectionary with your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. As we gather in our churches this weekend, we mark the 15th Sunday after Pentecost together. Our Old Testament reading will be from Amos chapter 8, verse 4 through 7, the Epistle, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 15, and the Gospel from Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 15. And Maybe this is a note for parishioners, lay people, to, to keep in mind here. These are This is not a preacher's favorite weekend. Let me just phrase it that way. So Amos is a very short and simple text, but it is all judgment. The judgment of God against sin. The epistle reading is one of the most hated scripture passages in America. One of. Close to the most? I don't know hard to say. I don't have a ranking there, but it's among them. And then the gospel reading is one of the most confusing parables and most conflicted and debated parables that our Lord and Master Jesus Christ ever told. So where does the preacher go? Which text does he preach? It's a challenge. So pray for your pastor as he's preparing to to bring God's word before you this weekend and proclaim his law and his gospel. It's doable. It's just a tough week. So as we look to the Old Testament, Amos chapter 8, verses 4 through 7. If you're you're looking for the context here, we haven't had Amos yet this year. So Amos was a minor prophet. Amos was a prophet, and he served the Lord during the reigns of Uzziah, king of Judah, and Jeroboam, king of Israel. Not the first Jeroboam, but a later one. So 792 to 740 BC is the time period that we would put on that. And we will see Amos again next week too. Amos chapter 6. The subtitle in the Lutheran Study Bible for chapter 8 is The Coming Day of Bitter Mourning. And our text is pretty unmistakable for its very strict and harsh declaration of judgment against those who harm the poor. It's a short one, so let me read the whole thing here. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, when will the new moon be over that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale? that we may make the ephah small and the shekel great, and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, and sell the chaff of the wheat. Yahweh has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds." That's it. That's the text. Again, blunt, straightforward. Let's take a look. Here, this is a a very quick call to pay attention as the Lord is about to give a, a strong warning. And then we talk about the needy today. Now, the Old Testament had certain gr- groups that the Lord protected and Okay, he protected all his people, but that his people in particular were to look after and protect and care for. The fatherless and the widow are almost always lumped together. So orphans and widows, fatherless is the the preferred term in ESV as far as I can tell. Every now and again, the sojourner gets added to that list. So the one who doesn't live among you, who's not native to you, but has, has been traveling and is staying with you at least for the time. And that might end up being permanent but for now they're they're an outsider who's just among you and then on a lesser occasion the poor get attached to that that same list there are many texts in scripture that talk about how the christian and i use that phrase to also refer to the old testament believers in god how the christian is to care for and treat the poor And it's not verse 4. It's not by trampling on them and bringing them to an end. That's killing them, destroying them. The wealthy are destroying the poor. Those who have, who ought to be sharing with the poor and caring for them, aren't. This is in contrast to what we see of the early church in Acts chapter 2, where they held everything in common, and if there was anyone who had a need... Uh, they would sell something, and they would make sure that need was met. Very different way, way of life, very different look. So, how are they trampling on the poor? How are they destroying them? Most of this text then ends up being a, an implanted word. So, God, in his judgment, speaking on behalf of these sinners. So this is basically what their hearts are saying, even if their mouths haven't said it. This is the desire of their heart. When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? The Sabbath we may offer wheat. So recognize the, the similarity. Those are parallel statements. They want the festival days of God to end. Because on the festival days, the markets are closed. You're not supposed to work. So there's no selling, which means they can't make a profit. And they're disappointed. So the new moon is a reference to the start of their month. And if you look at Numbers chapter 28, verses 11 through 15, you'll see a list of the sacrifices the people were to offer. Um, So the congregation was to offer up two bulls, one ram, seven lambs of... One and a half ephahs of fine flour, so about 33 liters. They were to mix that with oil for their offerings. And then 13 twelfths of a hen of wine, that would be just over four quarts. And that was the burnt offering. And then they would offer one male goat as the sin offering as well. And so the focus is on the Lord. The focus is with especially a sin offering, is on forgiveness, and here instead they are already plotting their next sin. That has a definite connection, a definite reference to our day and age today as the church, that we come to the Lord's table, we come to the supper to to feast, to enjoy the body and blood of Jesus Christ in, with, and under the bread and the wine, in which our sins are removed, forgiven from us, and we rejoice, but it is a warning as well that we would not be already plotting our next sin. This is not repentance. To repent of my sin is to turn away from it. It's not to say I won't turn back. I'm a sinner. I have a sinful nature and I am easily tempted and need to work on my own self-control and discipline. Anyway, if I come before the Lord and I say, I am sorry for stealing, the Lord forgives that sin. But if I come before the Lord saying, I'm sorry for stealing, while in my head I'm already plotting out how I'm going to go rob my neighbor this afternoon or tomorrow, I'm not actually repenting. I have not turned away from my sin at all. I'm already lockstep loaded to go towards the next one. That's the difference that I'm, I'm pointing out here, and that's the struggle that we can have sometimes as Christians even today. There's a difference between being repentant and not And again, like I could confess that sin of stealing, and then I could indeed go out and steal again tomorrow, but that's different than already having been planning it. We turn away from our sin. We confess it. We entrust the Lord to care for us. And we may very well, within moments, return to that sin. But it's not repentance if we're planning it. So that's the gist of what we're, we're getting here as well. They're not repenting as they bring a sin offering before God. They don't care. It means nothing. They are despising the Sabbath. They're breaking the third commandment in this. So let's cover the Sabbath as well since we're at it. The Sabbath would begin Friday evening and it would continue until Saturday evening This actually would show up just before Numbers 28 verse 11, the couple of verses before that would tell you about the Sabbath offering, which is a lot less, it's two lambs together with three-tenths of an effa of fine flour, and also oil. Um, So when the sun goes down Friday night, markets are closed, no more work, no one can work on the Sabbath with the exception being those who serve in the temple, the priests who have to make the sacrifices. Similarity there that your, your pastors work on, on those days like Christmas and Easter that are family celebrations, they're serving God and giving you his word and his sacrament those days. When the sun goes down again on Saturday night, the sabbath is now over and the markets can open and that they long for that they spend their entire sabbath instead of focusing on god focusing again on their work it's not really a break from work if you spend your whole day off thinking about it that too is a challenge for us as we struggle to get away and truly put our work beside us I would encourage you to do that as best as you can not as a law but just as what is good for your body and what's good for you to be able to serve your neighbor we're not made to work 24-7 we're not made to be constantly stressed, to be constantly on call to be constantly looking at a screen and checking email put it away put it down Enjoy the other things God has put into your life, the other people, the other relationships that you have. Enjoy his creation. They make the effa small and the shekel great, dealing deceitfully with false balances. So you can probably picture the old scale idea, and this is... And this is prior to that, but the one that we probably have in mind is, is the two metal trays with the, the lever in between. And if you, they're a little wobbly. If you put something on one side, it falls. Uh, that, that tray drops. But if you put something on the other side, you're balancing it out. That's the idea that you can have in mind here with these balances. But instead of it being a fair balance, they're tipping it in their own favor. They are changing the effa, so the quantity of the purchase. They're reducing that. Whether that means they're shrinking it, calling the EFA much less than it was, or if they're slipping stuff into the bag to make it feel heavy, feel like it should be the right amount, but there's not as much in there as what there should be. Not the same, but it's kind of like how bags of potato chips. There seem to be less and less potato chips in the bag and a whole lot more air. And you feel chipped whenever you open the bag. And they make the shekel great. So again, tipping the scales in their favor. Uh, The product they're sending out is less. And the product they're getting back, the money they're getting back, is more. So the shekel is a, a monetary unit with which they would trade so this one's theft we've got them breaking the third commandment despising the sabbath not keeping it holy now we've got the seventh commandment as they steal from one another but especially from the poor then verse six that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals Now they're breaking the ninth and the 10th commandment, coveting what belongs to their neighbor, including their neighbor's own body, their neighbor's own self. And they're also breaking the 5th commandment. I'm not calling slavery murder. Slavery is not necessarily that, but here I'm going with the hatred and the despising of one's neighbor. We do know that to hate another is to commit murder in our hearts and to look so upon them, here, is wicked. There is a pattern for slavery laid out by God in the Old Testament, even enslaving the poor, but it's not this. It's that the poor man recognizes his plight and realizes what his options before him are. He can remain on his little field that isn't producing where he's got nothing, and if he stays there, he's going to die of starvation. Or he can go knock on his neighbor's door and say, I'm in trouble. Can I sell myself into slavery to you that I may live? I will help you work. You would put food on the table that I can eat and a roof over my head. That's the picture of Old Testament slavery that God had laid out. and This is not that. You weren't supposed to want to do it. right? Your neighbor comes knocking on the door and puts that situation before you, and you take them into your home out of love for your neighbor. But it's not like you're out there looking for it. It's just like, well, I could sure use another person around here. Hmm, maybe I'll go and enslave somebody today. That's the opposite, but that's what their hearts were saying. And then they want to sell the chaff of the wheat, the worthless stuff. You get a good salesman, he can sell you anything. No, that's what they're trying to do. The chaff is that part of the wheat, so as you pull your wheat harvest in, you would bring it to the threshing floor, It's like the thin shell around the grains of wheat themselves. And so the threshing floor, they would take their their wheat, lay it out on the floor, and they would use basically something like a pitchfork kind of tool. They'd take a scoop, they'd toss it up in the air, and the wind combined with the the fall and hitting the ground would help loosen break up, separate the chaff from the wheat. The chaff is so light, while as the grain itself is a little heavier, The grain would return to the floor and you'd get to keep it whereas the chaff would be blown away separated out now they're taking that that worthless stuff that normally the wind just carried off and they're trying to see what kind of profit they can make for that there's nothing you can do with it though as the the regular people who would have been buying it basically this might connect to the effa being made small like you get a bag of grain that you think you can use to make bread for your family and like half the bags of chaff. That's not helpful. It's not going to do anything. You've been robbed. Yahweh has sworn by the pride of Jacob. The pride of Jacob is Yahweh. could be a reference to Genesis chapter 28 where Jacob meets Yahweh for the first time at Bethel when God gives him the dream of the angels descending and ascending on the staircase, God himself speaks to Jacob that day. God can swear by himself. To swear by something or someone is to bind that something or someone to yourself. So if I swear by, I don't know, let's take the court picture. If I swear by the Bible, I am binding that Bible to me saying that if I don't keep my oath, it's responsible. It will be held liable. It will be taken. I don't have that authority over God's word. I certainly can't swear by God himself. I have no authority over him. But God... God alone can swear by God because he is the chief authority of all. Surely I will never forget any of their deeds. This is what he has sworn, and it's exceedingly strong language. This is the result, this is the warning of the text. So, you want to do these things, you want to have this wickedness in your heart, you will not be forgiven. This is the declaration of God's judgment right here against his people for their sin. Surely, so as opposed to just saying, I will never forget when the surely word is added, it's for emphasis, never, another strong word, God is not going to forget their sins. He will judge them, and they will be destroyed for it. Israel destroyed in 722, Judah destroyed in 587. And we have no idea the outcome of their actual fate on Judgment Day. Although we can imagine it's not good for most of them. But we don't know the individuals, we don't know the hearts. This is very much opposite how God speaks in Jeremiah 31, where he says that he will forgive their iniquity, and remember their sin no more. So, definitely opposite situations. God's forgiveness and mercy being shown to his people. But this one, a tough text on judgment. Now we turn to the most difficult text, probably to preach, because it is the one that is so despised. Our culture absolutely hates this passage, but it's not just our culture. Because we, as Christians, have been raised in the land of America. So many of America's ideals have become our ideals. Our worldview is not the Bible. Our worldview is the way of life that we're used to. And this is trouble, but it means, then, that the things that we hear in this text that so anger America also end up so angering the Christian. That's a challenge. That's one that we need to self-rebuke. I need to be able to recognize that where the Bible doesn't seem to fit, the Bible's not the problem. I am, and I must change myself. I must adapt me to fit God's Word, rather than thinking I can adapt God's Word to fit me. That's how Christian churches go off their rails. That's how they're destroyed, is when they, they make such changes. Um, we've had fellow church bodies who have done such things, And at this point, several of them are no longer Christian. They go progressive. They become liberal in their theology. They jettison the truth of Christ being the only way. I've heard so-called Christian pastors laugh at the idea that Jesus is the only way to heaven. they become universalists. They're outside the faith. They have, as Paul warns Timothy at the start here of of this epistle back in chapter 1, they have made shipwreck of their faith. And that's the context we do need to double back on real quick. So Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, a young pastor in the church, and we're in this letter three weeks in a row together. And at the end of chapter 1, just a few words for you here, he says... This charge I entrust to you, wage the good warfare, holding on to the faith, but others by rejecting it have shipwrecked their faith. And again, himenaeus and Alexander mentioned by name, and that Paul then handed those men over to Satan. Probably referenced excommunication. That they might see the error of their way, repent, and return. So what is the charge? What is it that Paul has entrusted to Timothy? That's the rest of the letter, and he's going to get into it now. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. I am telling the truth, I am not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Notice, that's not the difficult part of the text. So, first, Paul encourages us to pray. Now, indeed, that is difficult for the Christian today. We are so deceived by the American way of life, we believe we are so busy that we don't have time to pray. Check your phone. Most phones track your own screen time take a look. You're not too busy. None of us are. And I still love the old Luther quote that he had so much to do today, he would spend the first three hours in prayer. You're not going to get it all done. And trust yourself to God. He's in charge. He can keep this earth spinning, and he will. You can't. I can't. We have to humble ourselves. Recognize that it's not all about us. So, prayers. It's interesting the word prayer shows up second in the list. I mean, supplication comes first. Supplication is asking for needs. Intercession is to basically pray for someone else, that we are interceding on their behalf, and then also giving thanks to God for, well, all people. We give thanks to God for all things, uh, for everything he has done, but now also for all people including kings. That's where Paul is going to get a little more specific with this urging that we pray, that we would pray for kings and everyone else in high positions. Romans 13, we learn that God has given us all of our governing authorities. To rebel against them is to rebel against God because God has given them their authority. So we pray for them, whoever they are, in order that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life. So we pray that the kings would have wisdom. We pray that they would be faithful leaders. Faithful both in the idea of faithful to God, but also faithful to their people. So faithful that they would have faith in Christ. And so we pray for that for our leaders, and also that they would rule their people well. That they would actually care about the people rather than about their power. Good luck finding that in American politics. It's mostly about power. And it doesn't take much to see that. Rare is the man or woman in American politics who's actually in it because they care about others. That we lead a peaceful and quiet life. This is the aim. This is the goal of the prayer that we would be able to live the life God has put before us. Now, that's not to say that you can't still live to God in other situations when the king does not give you peace, when he terrorizes you. Daniel, think of the Old Testament, the prophet Daniel, he's a slave under King Nebuchadnezzar and King Nebuchadnezzar is most of the time a very wicked man and yet Daniel serves him to the best of his ability he serves him faithfully as best he can there's something to be said for that but this is our starting point that we would ask God to give us a king that would allow us peace that we may live a quiet life now, we are not actually interested in quiet life as Americans. We're interested in the, the crazy, hectic, we're going berserk life. Constantly chasing after stuff and entertainment. And it's, it's killing us, quite literally, all the stress and the anxiety. And you can, you can see the number it's working on our kids. You can just see it. They are supposedly the most connected that they've ever been when you think of social media platforms, and yet they are statistically more depressed, more lonely, more suicidal. Our way of life isn't working. So we should we should pray for that too, that the Lord would help us to lead a quiet life again. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved. So notice this about, we'll get back to that, but Notice this about the reason then for the quiet life. We're not living a quiet life for ourselves. By having a peaceful and quiet life, more people will be saved. That means that we're able to go about doing what God has given us to do, sharing the gospel. That's not what the American fights for their rights and freedom for. They fight for their rights and for their freedoms for themselves to do the things they want to do, and it's not fighting for the kingdom of God. So verse four, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the character of our God. He created all people. He does not long to see them destroyed. He longs to see them in his paradise. He's set the table at the feast. He wants them to come the parable of the great banquet where the father's throwing this banquet for his son he's invited so many that would be the jews and they're not coming they make all the excuses they can come up with to avoid it so he sends his servants out into the streets to just bring in whoever that's the gentiles god desires to save all christ died on the cross for all and that's verse five In verse 6 here, there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So there's only one God. I don't know, there's lots of polytheistic religions out there that say there, even like Hindu says, there's millions of gods. There's only one. Who created the earth and the heavens, who created you, who created me, who breathed the breath of life into us. And he's also saved us. There's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The mediator is the one who stands between two parties and tries to reconcile them. Who reconciles us to God? That's Jesus who truly brings us the peaceful and quiet life, who is the king in the highest position, who gives us a godly and dignified life in paradise forevermore. He, verse 6, gave himself as a ransom for all. Ransom. For us. That we might be set free from sin, death, and the devil. By his blood shed on the cross. Thanks be to God. That's the testimony given at the proper time. So the testimony, the witness that is bore by the mediator as he speaks. Proper time. I can't tell you that I understand why 4 BC, 5 BC, 6 BC, something like that in the Middle East was the proper time. I don't know. We think, we like to think pridefully of our own technology that if Christ came today, everyone would be able to see, everyone would be able to hear. But they still wouldn't. God knows what he's doing. He picked the moment, he picked the place, not us. It was the proper time, even if we don't know why. It was. It's God's timing. And now, verse 7, Paul says for this. To preach Christ and him crucified... He was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher to the Gentiles in faith and truth. Galatians chapter 2 verse 7 covers this, that the apostles in Jerusalem recognized this, and just as Peter was a apostle to the circumcised, they made Paul the apostle to the uncircumcised. That would be the Gentiles. If your pastor is looking for the escape hatch this weekend, it's to preach the first paragraph of this text or the very end of the gospel reading. Now we get to the tough part. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good Oftentimes, we get these lists of things for men and women, and typically the list for the man is longer. Think of Ephesians 5, for example, where the the instruction to the wife is just a couple verses, like three verses long, and then the instruction to the man is triple that and includes dying. Not the case here. Ladies, this one's harder for you than it is for the man, although I mean let's not under, understate what the man is called to do here. Every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. This connects to first Thessalonians chapter five verse sixteen and seventeen. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing. Pray, men, pray, and I know we struggle with that. I struggle with that and I'm a pastor. Pray the devil deceives, the world continues to try to convince you you don't need to. Entrust yourself to the Lord. He will provide. He will care. So this picks up on the first paragraph, that opening statement about supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. Men, pray. Everywhere, every place, wherever you go, be in prayer. And then, Paul says, lifting up holy hands without anger or quarreling. So men, when you lift your hand, may it not be to lift your fist to strike. May it not be to lift up your, your hand so that you're ready to slap your neighbor. Right? So the, the lifting up of hands and violence and anger is contrasted with lifting up your hands and prayer. Now what's that look like? I'm going to wager it probably looks a little bit less like what we see in a lot of American Christian churches today. Consider this a posture of humility, humbleness, that you are lifting up your hands to receive. Right, We bring our prayers to the Lord, trusting that he will answer. Give us this day our daily bread, so let me stick out my hand, because I trust God will feed me. I'm going to receive his gifts. Now, hard to say and identify exactly what this looks like to do. I can say that historically the the ones who lead worship have had what's called the O-R-A-N-S position, O-R-A-N-S. And that's something you may have seen your pastor do in church as he leads the congregation in prayer, where he will lift up his hands, but he lifts them up off to the sides. Um... I don't know the history of that position all that well. I just know that that's what it's called, and it goes back quite a ways. The picture, the idea of this, though, is to be humble, to look to God, to receive from God. Then we get into the stuff for women, and again, it's longer here primarily verses 9 through 12. Verse 13 and onward is a description. Well, the basis of the argument? We'll come back to that. For context here, 1st century Rome, I'm not going to say it was exactly like 21st century America, but they had what was called in Rome the New Woman, and it was a time of women's rights and women's liberation from the ways that things had been in their culture before. Women were going to places they weren't allowed to go into before, places that had only been for men. They were entering places with authority that they hadn't had before. They were dressing in ways that they hadn't dressed before. The list goes on and on. And that does, that should sound a lot like our own society with the feminist movements of the American society in the 20th century. So Paul actually pushes back against that. Verse 9 is well verse 9 and 10 go together. They're not nearly as difficult. They're not nearly as trying as they first sound. Dress modestly. A lot of women get upset when they hear that. Men, I'm going to go ahead and just throw this one out there. How I describe these verses really applies to you too. Adorn yourselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Respectable clothing. What's wrong with that? Don't dress like... And I, I don't mean this to. to be critical, but seriously, don't dress like the prostitutes. Like, in Roman society, the prostitutes dressed differently. If a man was wandering around on the streets, he would know what a prostitute was. Don't dress like that. Dress respectably. Because your body is not your own, it was bought for a price. Christ, very own blood. That's an example. There could be some of that in the idea of the braided hair, that the way that you may have wore your hair might have indicated such things like perhaps marital status or an openness to a different sexual lifestyle than was the norm for the Christian church. But instead dress with modesty, self-control. Not with braided hair, gold, pearls, costly attire. Is there anything wrong with gold? Is there anything wrong with a pearl? Anything wrong with costly attire? Is there really anything wrong with necessarily braiding your hair? It's not these. The issue is, why are people looking at you? Hang in there. Dress instead with what is proper for women who profess godliness. Dress yourself with good works. And again, I say this goes as much for men as it does for women. Why do the people see you? Do they see you? because you're dressing in a way that draws attention to yourself? Or do you dress in such a way that you would really typically normally go unnoticed but now they see your good works? They see you loving your neighbor. They see you loving them. And instead of being pointed to you and how great you are, look at your beauty, they're being pointed to Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's the aim here with this idea of of modesty. It's not about life in general, it's not about what we want. We are slaves of God, we are servants of Christ, we're not here to live however we please. You have a master, I have a master, so let's not live this life in such a way that we just point to me, me, me all the time. Let's live this life in a way that we point to Jesus in all things, all that we do. So yeah, don't dress in a way that draws attention to yourself. That might be the costly idea, which is certainly what he gets at—costly attire, gold, pearls. So you, you know, you dress with such an expensive wardrobe in the midst of a community that's poor. As you walk down the street, everybody looks at you. Not the goal. We don't dress to stand out. Verses 11 and 12 go together, and if possible, are even more infuriating to the American than verses 9 and 10 were. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is a posture of life. Let me come back to that first, though. This has been used in LCMS churches over the last couple of generations to be the proof text, together with another one from 1 Corinthians, that says that women cannot be pastors. And it has been reduced to saying, let a woman learn quietly in the church. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man in the church. That's the way it's taken. That's the way it's read. Let me just challenge that. Is the phrase in the church here? Does Paul only desire in verse 8 that men would lift up hands in the church to pray? Or does he truly mean everywhere? Does Paul only want you to dress with modesty when you go to go to church on Sunday morning? Or does he want you to dress modestly all the time? I think that impacts the way we look at these verses as well. This does not say in the church. In which case, let a woman learn quietly. She is to remain quiet. Isn't dead silence. Paul is not saying it is a sin if a woman opens her mouth. It's not what this is. This is getting back to where I started. This is It's a posture of life. Let's give some contrast. Women should not be loudmouthed. Again, I'd say that about men as well. There are texts in the New Testament talking about how many of their women have become busybodies. We do know gossip is a sin that is more of a temptation to women than it is to men. So don't be loudmouthed, don't be a busybody gossiping about everything and everything. But be humble. Serve. As Christ our Lord came to serve. That would be a part of it. That would play into this. And then, also the idea of the authority. It's a part of this. That's a key part of this. Your husband is in a position of authority over you. Again, that's despised in America. And even in the church, Most of the time, I sit down with a couple to do pre-marriage counseling. They want nothing to do with that. The husband is not the head of the house. They are egalitarians. They are equals. Because that's what they've been taught. They have not been taught the ways of God. Let me take you to a couple of places here. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God Ephesians chapter 5 verse 23 for the husband is the head of the wife even as Christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its Savior is Christ still the head of the church If the answer to that is yes then would not also the husband still be the head of the wife Paul's argumentation in these things is not not time-specific. I know a lot, again, the progressive, more liberal theologies in some of the churches around us in our society say that Paul, well, they just eliminate these texts. They say that Paul's a misogynist, he was just trained by the culture of his time, and none of this applies. Well, you've just eliminated not just these parts of Paul, then, if Paul is a misogynist who hated women, And we can't trust these texts, then why take anything Paul's written? You just eliminated half of the New Testament. 13 out of 27 books. Gone. Or, again, we can look at it from the perspective of saying, if I don't like what the text says, it's me that's the problem, not the text. I have to fit myself to God's Word, not God's Word to fit my life. The Genesis 3 curse of woman was that she would long to steal her husband's headship. We don't normally read it that way. That The woman's desire, the wife's desire, would be for her husband. Most people think that's a sexual reference, like that she's going to want to have sex with her husband. That wouldn't be a curse. Sex is a good gift God has created within marriage. The curse is that word desire, and it comes in the next chapter, in chapter 4, when you're talking about Cain, who's going to kill his brother Abel, and God warns him that sin desires to master over him. Same Hebrew word. The woman will desire to master over her husband. But the husband will rule his wife. So instead of the, the loving rule that Adam should have had for his wife, he rules her harshly. We've seen far too much of that in history. We've also seen, again, women trying to take that role from their husband as well. It's the curse from Genesis 3. It's been broken ever since Adam and Eve messed it up. Husbands, you are the head of your house. And this needs to be stated today. Live like it. Lead your family. And that does not mean do whatever you want whenever you want. It means, go read Ephesians 5... And learn about what that role looks like, that you are to give yourself, die to self, as Christ did. Christ died for the church, so you die for your wife. So, Paul says that women are not to teach or exercise authority over a man. This is the main point. Husbands, you are the head, not the wife. So, wives remain in your role. God created you, Genesis 3, to serve your husband, to be his helper, to help him care for creation. God's created order is good. It is our sinful nature that seeks to rebel against it. So, husbands lead well, wives help well. We're in this together, we are a family husband and wife, serving together, caring for our children, caring for one another, caring for the creation around us, caring for our neighbors. Life's not about you. Life's not about me. Now notice the basis for his argument. Again, if you want to say he was just a misogynist jerk, uh, we got to throw this out, he doesn't base it in Roman culture. He doesn't base it in that whole Roman new woman thing I had mentioned before. He bases it where? Verses 13 and 14. In the creation itself. Adam was formed first, then Eve. Adam was not deceived. The woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Has that changed? Paul wrote this nearly 2,000 years ago, like 1960, something like that. Has this changed? Now is it that Adam was the one who was deceived first? No. The basis for Paul's argument still stands. So the argument still stands. Typically, the scriptures will actually blame Adam for the fall. Because he's the head. He was responsible for caring for his wife, and he didn't. I love the way Pastor Jeff Himmer takes it in his book, Man Up, Quest for Masculinity, where he basically says it was the first science experiment. Adam, standing beside his wife as the devil tempts her, is willing to watch her partake of the fruit she was told not to, to see what would happen. Let's not test it on myself. Eh, she can take the fall. If she dies, I'll know not to eat it. Scriptures obviously don't go that far, but it's an intriguing way to consider what's going on in Adam's mind. As his wife is being attacked, he should have stood for her. He should have taken the blow. He should have prevented the serpent from harming his wife. But he just stood there. Typically, Scripture blames Adam for the fall. Not here. This still stands. God's created order is good. It is a gift that he has made male and female husbands and wives rejoice in that children can rejoice in that if your mom and dad weren't male and female you or, well, i guess respectively female and male in that statement mom and dad you wouldn't be here <laughs> but these are good gifts we're not the same we are different and that is thanks be to god why eliminate that our culture wants to eliminate that our culture is given over to satan the devil's having his way. He's running amok, slaughtering millions, deceiving us all. Don't give in to his games. Being American isn't working, in case you haven't noticed. right? What's happening to our church? What's happening to our children? They're watching us, and they're leaving the church in droves. So rather than say that the Bible is wrong, which we've been doing for the last couple of generations, even within our own church body, maybe it's time for us to repent and humbly return to the Word of God and pray for the Lord to protect our kids and learn what it will take to protect our children from the world's attacks. Verse 15, yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is a challenging verse without a doubt. Many certainly struggle and wrestle with it. She, female, singular. What's the singular female that has just been referenced in the text? It's Eve. Eve will be saved through childbearing. Why? Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. That God will put enmity between Eve and the serpent, between her offspring and the serpent's offspring, and that her offspring would crush the serpent's head even though it it tried to crush his heel. When sin enters into creation, we immediately get the first promise of a Savior, that the devil would strike Christ, but that Christ would crush the devil. It is through childbearing, which is a gift that God gives to women, No, our culture doesn't see it that way either. But it is through the generations that would come that Eve is saved. By the birth of Jesus, the Savior comes into the world. And I think then you can take that saved verb and go ahead and apply it to the second part of the sentence as well. That they will be saved if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This is building on what was said at the end of chapter 1, that Timothy should remain in this, that he should fight the good warfare, that he should hold on to the faith and not shipwreck his faith like Hymenaeus and Alexander have. Stay in Christ, remain in the faith, and that's said here of these women too. Don't go down the path of shipwreck. Hold on to Christ. For our gospel reading it is Luke chapter 16 verses 1 through 15 and again a difficult passage but let's lay some context here. Remember last week's gospel reading from Luke chapter 15 that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem and along the way he was meeting with tax collectors and sinners and even dining with them. That is, he was seeking to reach the lost, which is what we're going to come back to here in a moment. And so the Pharisees and the scribes get angry with him. They grumble against him for eating with sinners. Jesus turns to the Pharisees and he speaks three consecutive parables. The parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost son, prodigal son, in which, all of which, the point is, that the sinner is the one that needed to be found. And so Jesus has come into his creation in order to find the lost ones and to bring them back. And so now he has. He has found this tax collector. He's found this sinner, and he has brought them home. And the Pharisees are that older brother grumbling, the, the, the younger brother, the foolish one that squandered it all, that he's been brought home and that there's a party. There is much rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. Jesus has come to restore the whole world, and he leaves that last parable open so the Pharisees have the, the opportunity to come back into the party too. Celebration's still going on. They're right there outside the house. Come on in. We'll see at the end of this parable that they don't. So having told those three parables, Jesus now turns to his disciples. Same context, he hasn't moved on. The Pharisees are still there, they're still listening. But he turns to his disciples to teach this parable. And this is, the again, one of the most confusing, if not the most confusing ones he's taught or misunderstood. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager. And charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, "'What is this that I hear about you? "'Turn in the account of your management, "'for you can no longer be manager.' "'The manager said to himself, "'What shall I do? "'Since my master is taking the management away from me, "'I am not strong enough to dig, "'and I am ashamed to beg. "'I have decided what to do "'so that when I am removed from management, "'people may receive me into their houses.' So, summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, And how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Typically, parable interpretation, the master is God. And that's what causes, I think, the most confusion about this parable, is people look at it and they're just like, well, this man is dishonest. We call it the parable of the dishonest manager. He steals from his master, and yet the master commends him. Why would God commend theft? Why would God commend dishonesty? In the art of parable interpretation, if we want to phrase it that way, it's important to remember that we don't need to make everything in the parable fit. Jesus is is telling a story to make a point, to teach something. We don't need to line up one for one every single detail of the parable. If we do that, it's no longer a parable. It's just a real-life story. It's just the teaching thing that it is. He's using a parable. He's using a story to teach. So don't try and unpack everything. Don't overthink everything. What's the point? And Jesus tells us the point in this one. Verse 9, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. That's the purpose. That's what we want to focus on. So let's go ahead and unpack the parable briefly, and then focus on what's really going on. So the story that Jesus tells, you've got a rich man with the manager who oversees the rich man's stuff. And he learns that this manager has been abusing his authority, has been doing stuff poorly, not managing his stuff well, so he's going to fire him. Learning that he's going to be dismissed, what does the manager do? Well, he quickly decides, here's a way that I can come out of this thing okay. I'm going to go ahead, I'm going to go to the people that owe my master money, and I'm going to cut how much they owe him. They'll like me. They'll think, oh, that man just did me a huge favor. I owe him one. And so when they see this now-fired manager out on the street, they'll look to help him, and he'll be taken care of. And that's the aim. And so he cuts bills. He cuts one man's from 100 measures of oil down to 50. So cuts he his, cuts his debt in half. We're seeing this in the government right now, aren't we? With the push for student loan forgiveness, even if it is just a, a small fraction of the student loans that most people have, it's earning favor. He does it again. Cuts another man's bill from 100 down to 80. So, not as much as a discount as he gave the other guy, but still noteworthy, still measurable, uh, noticeable. The master commends him for his shrewdness, shrewdness to be crafty, to be wise. He recognizes that this manager, he knows how to deal. He knows how to survive. Commends him for it. Yes, again, typically parables, master is God. Okay. Well, if we want to think of it that way, we were the... The manager, God entrusted to us this creation to care for, and we failed in our management. We sinned and rebelled against our master. We sinned and rebelled against God, and so he was going to cast us out. But now in Christ, he has welcomed us home. That would fit back into the first three parables if we wanted to do it that way. But again, not the point. The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation. So, children of the world, not of faith, children of the world, they are wise in dealing with the time, in dealing with others, kind of connects back to Amos 8 and the idea of stealing from even the poor. Like, we learn how to game the system. You give anyone enough time, just about anyone, enough time, they will figure out how to make the system at play work. They'll figure out how to game the stock market to make money for themselves. We've seen that with hedge fund managers for years, and now all of a sudden we had that that rush and the pandemic of people that wanted to, to basically stick it to the hedge fund guys. They learned how to game the system, and, and some of them made hundreds of thousands of dollars on these companies that were almost bankrupt. You learn how to game the system. You're, you're wise in your own generation. You know how to work what you have in front of you. They are more shrewd than the sons of light children of God that we don't know how to do it and we don't know how to work the system but a different system we don't know what it means to be children of God so they learn the world learns how to game their own system they learn how to deal in their own way in their own time in their life But as christians as those who would seek to follow god again pharisees are in earshot here they don't know how to deal in the things of god this isn't to say earn their own salvation but even the simple things like loving your neighbor they're not there they don't do them they don't recognize it and so then verse 9 again is going to be the point here jesus gives the command make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails they may receive you into the eternal dwellings there's a few points to unpack in this first unrighteous wealth unrighteous it's not holy it doesn't last nothing unrighteous makes it into paradise all of your stuff your house your income your car your toys your gadgets your furniture whatever all of it is unrighteous wealth. Not to say it's bad. It's just unrighteous stuff. It's just stuff. When it fails, notice it's a when, not an if. Stuff fails. It doesn't endure forever. It doesn't go on. It will perish. It will burn. Some of it will perish in our lifetimes. Some of it right will wear it out, and it won't even last long enough to be burned in the end of the world. But the day comes when all of it goes away. The old phrase, you can't take it with you, right? Use this unrighteous stuff. Use the stuff God has entrusted to you here in this place, not just to have fun. Use it to make friends, like this shrewd, dishonest manager did. He made friends who could receive him. Make friends who can receive you and not in a worldly way, who can receive you into the eternal dwellings. Paradise. How will people be in paradise? Because they don't Jesus. So how will these people that you meet and that you make friends with, with your stuff, how will they be in paradise? Because you've shared Christ with them. This is the aim of the parable. It is, it's verse 9. Use your stuff to make friendships. And having made those friendships, in those relationships, you will have the opportunity to speak about Christ. And thanks be to God, through the work of his Holy Spirit, some of those friends will come to know Christ. And thus, they will be in paradise, and if they beat you there, they will be there to welcome you home. That's the goal. The Pharisees aren't doing that. They're using their stuff, their unrighteous wealth, to care for themselves. And when they see these others who are in need, they look down upon them. Those are sinners. We want nothing to do with those sinners. Jesus is teaching his disciples to live differently, to not be sons of this world, but to be sons of light, to learn what it means to lay down your life out of love for one another, to learn what it means to to give everything of yourself to care for someone and to share Christ with them to bear your cross so this continues and i'm just going to read the last two paragraphs together here they're a little shorter one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much if then you who have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth Who will entrust to you the true riches and if you have not been faithful in what is another's who will give you that which is your own no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other you cannot serve god and money the pharisees who were lovers of money heard all of these things and they ridiculed him he said to them you are those who justify yourselves before men but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Here's where the point ends up driving home with the Pharisees in these latter points. Verses 10, 11, and 12 are fairly straightforward. Um, We've got a nice term for it in American economics today, or I don't even know if that's the right way to say it, but uh, there are many who call it the magnification principle, that if you have If you do well caring for a little of something, you will also do well if you have much of it. But if you can't care for a little, you can multiply it all you want, and you won't care for it. You won't be able to care for it either. This is why lottery winners and athletes who make millions typically go broke. They couldn't manage the little that they had, and so a whole bunch was thrown in their lap, and they hadn't learned how to manage it, so they wasted it all too happens again and again all around us in our our current culture. So, same here. But God applies this. Jesus applies this to eternity. That if you haven't been faithful with this little stuff, this unrighteous stuff, why should God entrust his creation to you? The new heaven, the new earth. If you haven't been faithful in that little tiny thing that was yours, why should he make you king over it all? Why should he give this to you? You can't serve two masters you will come to hate one so the warning here is you can't serve God and money and the Pharisees who are again overhearing all of this they are lovers of money they are trying to serve God and money and they end up hating God Jesus is God they're hating Jesus and they only love their money so hopefully you can see this all coming together at this point Jesus rebukes them because they have justified themselves, but God knows their heart. So what is in a, what is exalted among men, what we lift up as being great and important, like money, is an abomination in the sight of God. I've really come to the point where pretty much anything that the American culture seeks to lift up as being great, it's evil. I mean, this verse says it, Right? Um, but it it seems to be strikingly more and more true every time I look around me. Um, Lord, have mercy. Lord, help us use the unrighteous stuff we have in the time that we still have it to make friends for ourselves who may receive us into the eternal dwellings. Help us to share Christ with those who are in need.